Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday this week at 11 a.m. February 15th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Hello. Glad to be here. Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. And Margot sanger Katz of The New York Times. Hello. And today, we also have an interview with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, head of the Food and Drug Administration. Also, since Valentine's Day was this week, we have some special extra credits for you at the end of the show. But first, the health news this week. President Trump put out his first full budget on Monday, and to no one's surprise, it proposes deep cuts to a lot of health programs. Before we go any further, it's important to point out that this budget is even deader on arrival than most presidential budgets. That's because Congress last week passed a lot of specifics, not just for this fiscal year, which is almost half over, but for the next fiscal year, which is what this budget covers. On the other hand, there are lots of proposals in the budget that Congress could do if it wanted, and some that the administration could do on its own. So with that said, who wants to talk about some of the health highlights? Well, I'm happy to talk about the opioid provisions. I mean, you're totally right, Julia. A lot of this budget was, like, frankly kind of boring to read because you know most of it's not going to go into effect. But to me, the only part that was really interesting was the opioid proposals. And that's because uh, Congress has allocated uh, $6 billion more in opioid funding last week. And so this budget, but, but hadn't actually provided a lot of specifics as to how HHS would actually use that money it left a lot of discretion up to the secretary. And so I think this budget did give some hints as to how the administration looks at those dollars and might, might, might approach it. It asked for $17 billion in total in opioid funding. Um, but you kind of see like a range of, of um, agencies across which this funding um, would be distributed. Um, so there are a couple of um, you know treatment-oriented approaches. One notable part of the budget was that it proposed that state Medicaid programs start covering more medication-assisted therapy. And that was, you know, something that a lot of health advocates are really looking for because there is a lot of science behind the idea that this is the best way to help people get off of opioid abuse. Um, I think Margot had a really good um, map, actually, maybe earlier this week, showing that um, one-third of the states still, I think, only cover two or fewer medication-assisted treatments in their in their Medicaid programs. Um, you know, but but also, you know, this budget request kind of underscored the fact that the administration is also putting a pretty big emphasis on law enforcement and on trying to stop the supply of illicit drugs. It does request um, some funding to go to the DEA, to go to Customs, um, to go to the Justice Department. Um, and so if you're somebody who thinks that uh, combating the opioid abuse crisis is is sort of multifaceted, and that and that you should distribute funding across law enforcement and treatment equally. Then you probably would be pretty happy at this budget proposal. If you're somebody who thinks that we really need to be mostly investing more in treatment for people, um, you might be a little bit dismayed at kind of how the how the administration seems to be approaching this. But but to me, that was the most consequential part of the budget is just looking at kind of the details of how that how they would use this money. I also noticed there were a whole lot of proposed changes to the Medicaid program for, yeah, for so people I, who think that, that, you know, Medicaid is off the table. So I, I just 
thought I would talk a little bit about Medicaid, Medicare, and also the Affordable Care Act uh, parts of the budget. So no surprise that the White House continues to want to repeal Obamacare, as it did last year. Uh, But, I think important but, um, they sort of changed their approach. So historically, or last year, the Trump budget and also the uh, Republican budgets in Congress in previous years have basically imagined an Obamacare repeal that looks something like turning back the clock to 2009 and getting rid of all the new spending programs that Obamacare created. This budget actually picks sort of a legislative strategy. And it says that really what it would like is to replace Obamacare with something similar to the Graham-Cassidy legislation that came up last year. So that's legislation that would take away those programs and replace them with block grants to states and would replace the current Medicaid program with per capita caps to states. So there are some details that are different, but kind of it does seem like the White House is embracing that structure. I don't think anyone has super high hopes that Obamacare repeal is coming back in this Congress. But if it did, I think the White House is for the first time really uh, putting its thumb on the scale in terms of what approach it would like Congress to take. On Medicare, there was a lot made of the fact that the budget suggests a bunch of places to make changes to Medicare that would save money. You know, Trump obviously famously ran on promises not to change Medicare at all. And I think a lot of people on the left were sort of squealing about this as a betrayal of that promise. I would just note that those changes were not big structural changes to Medicare. They were not the kinds of changes that, say, Paul Ryan had proposed when he was the budget committee chairman that would turn Medicare into something more like a voucher program. Instead, these were kind of technocratic changes, you know. And every every president's budget has a whole long list of well, the last changes year's budget didn't. So yeah, I think last true. year they were really careful to politically to to sort of not violate that promise and not really do very much in Medicare. This year you start to see the return of some of these kinds of proposals, but these are in many cases identical to proposals that the Obama administration uh, budgets had included and and are similar to things that MedPAC and other sort of nonpartisan expert groups have recommended. That does not mean that they're not controversial. It does not mean that they would not reduce spending in the Medicare program, but they're not the kind of like big, let's, you know, entitlement reform, let's shake everything up kind of Medicare reforms that you might think if you were just kind of reading some tweets from activists on the left. I think they were kind of more subtle. And some of them were, I think, quite interesting and, and worthy of further exploration. Uh, In terms of Medicaid, there were quite a lot of proposed changes. There was a huge kind of whack out of Medicaid spending in this budget, which included both this block grant proposal, which would remove a lot of the money that is being spent on the Medicaid expansion in Obamacare, this uh, change to a per capita cap system for the rest of Medicaid that was indexed to an extremely sort of stingy growth rate. So it would be uh, even less generous than the uh, Medicaid per capita caps that Congress considered last year. So basically, the more generous you are as a state with your Medicaid program, the bigger a hit you would take. Well, it has to do with growth over time. So you know, you start out with some level, and the and the right, that's are a little bit weird. But yeah. you know, it has to do with like how you know whether you can uh, slow down the growth and spending in your program. And you know, most I think credible experts think that the growth rate that con- that the White House has chosen for this, which is the uh, Consumer Price Index Urban is substantially lower than the growth rate for medical expenditures in a typical year. So, you know, it would be hard. And one, one thing else I should note on Medicaid, just to add, is that a lot of health advocates and folks on the left were noting that, you know, even though the budget contains all these proposals for combating opioid abuse, Medicaid covers four in 10 people that are addicted to opioids. So if you're simultaneously proposing all these deep cuts to Medicaid, that would seem to undermine your other efforts. Which kind of came up a lot last year <laughs> during the discussions of these uh, of these bills. And I think when 
one of one of the reasons I had trouble getting anything over the top was was because of the how much it would take from states who were working to combat you know and then, opioid and then abuse. And the budget also proposes in Medicaid these this would require legislative changes, but it proposes changes that would essentially allow states to erect uh, new eligibility barriers for Medicaid. And so one is currently you qualify for Medicaid in the expansion population just on the basis of your income. So if you earn less than you know about 133 percent of the federal poverty limit, that's like $16,000 for a single person in a year. If you earn less than that, you qualify for Medicaid. And you don't have to do a whole lot of other demonstrating about your financial circumstances or your health status. You just get Medicaid. Uh, what this bill would do is it would allow states to impose asset tests so and to lower the minimums for those asset tests. So, uh, I'm sorry, not it, what this bill, would, what this proposal, it would right. propose legislation. It would so, reinstate asset tests that used to be there that the Affordable Care Act got rid of, which was a, which was a huge, at, at one point, you could not have a car that was worth more than $2,000 and qualify for Medicaid. Now, granted, that was like in the 1990s, but still. But was, this is also a proposal of a limit on home equity. So, you know, there are arguments f- for this. If, if there's a view that Medicaid should really only be available to people who don't have other resources to pay for their health insurance, maybe you would want to make the argument, you know, someone shouldn't have a fancy car and be able to get government provided health insurance. And that's a values question that we could talk about. But uh, I think it is important in light of quite a lot of research showing that just the sort of hassle of having to demonstrate these things, you know, trying to dem- trying to go to a Medicaid office and prove all of your assets, every single bank account you have, the value of your home and the status of your mortgage, how much your car is worth. That's actually like pretty hard for people to do. And you have to prove a negative that there isn't some asset that you failed to disclose. Historically, those asset tests were associated with lower enrollment in the program. And uh, the budget would also proposes that Medicaid beneficiaries have to affirmatively demonstrate their citizenship. Uh, That's also something that's been tried before and was associated with real sharp reductions in enrollment that do not appear to be due to the fact that lots of non-citizens were signing up for Medicaid, but instead were just due to the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't have their original birth certificates and getting them can be a hassle and an expense. And the budget also um, angered some conservatives because of its um, interest in returning some cost-sharing Production subsidies too, um, which the and president risk, risk orders, right, right, <laughs> which the president had uh, ended in October. So that's also touched up a bit of a furor among, um, you know, some of the conservative groups that see this as an action to shore up the very law that, in fact, the budget would knock down. That's always been so weird to me too, because it's like giving money to industry. <laughs> I mean, like, aren't conservatives supposed to be, like, pro-business? And no, they're insurer bailouts. <laughs> they got to get your talking points right. All right, well, en- enough with the things that m- probably won't happen. Let's talk just briefly. I want to revisit our you know, conversation. Well, can we talk about that for one second? Because it okay. is right, kind well, of amazing that, you know, President Trump cut off these cost-sharing reductions because he felt that they were unlawful and now right. is sort of asking for them to come to back. Be, to be funded, right, which, of course, they are now debating as part of a stabilization plan. So yeah. this it, gives it, some... It, it does make your head spin. It, yeah, but it gives <laughs> some push to that um, for Republicans in terms of will they kind of come on board with this idea. Well, yeah. but wait, it's not really inconsistent, though, for the administration to to ask Congress to do they it, right? Yeah. That was the whole thing. Of yeah, like the argument what, was that the money hadn't been appropriated. And the board had sided with Congress, essentially, saying the money had to be appropriated. Of, I mean, although in the initial stabilization package they were looking at that would restore the cost-sharing subsidies, the president was very much opposed to it as a bailout. So that's yeah. where kind of the head-scratching comes yeah, in. Yeah, there, there's been, there's been a, lot of flip, a lot of flip-flops on this. <laughs> All right. 
Anyway, I want to revisit uh, our conversation from last week about the big bipartisan spending bill, which is something that is law. Um, We talked about some of the headline items. The Children's Health Insurance Program is now renewed for 10 years. Uh, The the bill repeals a controversial piece of the Affordable Care Act that would create an independent board to cut Medicare spending if its budget exceeds certain limits. Uh, And the bill changes the way Medicare pays for some prescription drugs. But there are many, many other health items in that that people are just now discovering. Um, One example, this is something Republicans have been pushing for a while to what you were just talking about, Margo, people who win the lottery are no longer eligible for <laughs> right, Medicaid. Right. That's, that's been a really big priority. For, it has it for has Republicans. It has been a big priority <laughs> yeah, for Republicans. What else from, from last week? Anybody have sort of a favorite small item that uh, that we haven't discussed yet? Uh, I just, I ended up writing about the IPAB just because yeah. it, you know, the, the, the part of Obamacare that actually never got to live, Republicans have now killed um, yes, this is the Independent Payment Advisory Board. The, yes. the famous never constituted Independent Payment Advisory <laughs> Known as Board. The death panels. The, so, by yes. Critics. The so called death panels. And I mean, there were a lot of arguments all along for why the IPAB might not work very well. Um, you know, the idea that Congress would actually take the recommendations from this board of appointees. And well, they then, would have to take them. That was the that was the issue. They would need it. I think it was a two-thirds majority to override well, so someone them. Someone actually corrected me on Twitter about this. So they only need a majority to propose their own cuts of similar magnitude. Congress only needs Congress a does. But they need a supermajority in order to ignore the cuts altogether. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Which, I mean, given how unpopular Medicare cuts are, they, they could have presumably gotten that maybe. But... But but, um, you know, it just it it was like one of these things that just never really played a role in reality. Only well, it never got in, triggered. Be, right. It never got triggered because because Medi- Medicare spending growth was down. Right. Right. So but um, but but yeah, but but, you know, it was been a, a f- I mean, if, if the individual mandate was like the favorite, you know, punching bag of of, of conservatives, maybe the iPad was the second. Yes. So, I, I yeah. think the, I, so I made a joke last week that I'm like changing my job title to, you know, Obamacare provision obituary writer. Like, bye bye iPad, like bye bye individual mandate. But I do think that there's a broader political significance to the fact that these pieces of Obamacare are being picked away. You know, these are the really unpopular parts of Obamacare. They're not just unpopular among Republicans. They are unpopular with the public. And they were unpopular among some Democratic lawmakers, too, which is why no one is super sad to see them But although it's also part of this incremental strategy, though, that right, Republicans are trying to do. Right, but that's what I was going to say is that I think, I think it really represents a shift. I think as long as Republicans wanted to repeal Obamacare lock, stock, and barrel, they wanted the really ugly parts in the package, right? So they could say, we're repealing Obamacare to get rid of the stuff that you hate. I think the fact that they're taking out the least popular parts one at a time reflects their pessimism that they can repeal the whole thing. Because if they kind of one at a time, we dislike this part, we dislike that part, we dislike this part, and they remove them all, then you end up with a package that is less objectionable to the public and is less objectionable to members of Congress. And I think it becomes harder to make an argument that what remains is so awful that it has to be repealed. That's a really good point, Margot, because actually I was remembering over the last couple of years, there were lots of those pieces of the unpopular pieces of the ACA that they probably could have gotten enough Democrats on to repeal. And I was kind of wondered, like, why didn't they push harder for those things? But whenever I talk to political folks, they're like, well, that's exactly it. Like, if you get rid of this stuff, then it's harder to make that case for full repeal. And back then, of course, they still had this hope of getting the majority, you know, in the White House and the majority in Congress to actually be able to do it. So I think that does sig- signal a shift 
in their thinking of yeah, Republicans what used they to, can do. used to always say, we don't want to improve Obamacare. We don't right. want to take votes to make Obamacare better. You can argue, I think the individual mandate, you know, maybe makes Obamacare work a little bit less well. The IPAB never really went into effect, so who knows. But I think that these are votes that could be sort of put in that category of making Obamacare better, which, again, I think maybe reflects the fact that Republicans are a little less committed to full-scale repeal. Which although, is exactly our next topic, I which say, I think is what you, you were going to say, Stephanie. Into, if you take what they are doing, especially now the latest debate over pr- potentially employer mandate and couple that with the regulations that are being done, you do see sort of this increasing chiseling away at at it that is just perhaps not grasp the public may not grasp, I think. So so tell us about the employer mandate and where what's going on with that. Oh well the, the well as every, many people know the IRS started enforcing penalties on the, from the employer mandate uh back in November is when they said they were going to do it. Um, this just was, a reminder that only employers over 100 uh, have to have to provide health insurance, and they only have to pay a fine if one of the employees to whom they don't provide health insurance goes on the exchange and gets a subsidy. And so the issue is that the assessment letters are going out from the IRS and, and sparking a lot of concern because some of these fines are really quite hefty. Some of them are based on incorrect information that employers put together, incorrect kind of information from the IRS reading. And there's also now this push that says, wait, the IRS doesn't really have the authority to do this because um, the employers never got notification in 2015 from the exchanges that they were supposed to. So there's talk of litigation brewing, there's appeals happening, um, and all of this is building more momentum to try and get an employer mandate repeal potentially as part of the stabilization package. And in fact, um, many Republicans, Hill aides that I spoke to, um, said that they, they see this as a potential avenue in the omnibus. Whether that will happen remains to be seen, but it's certainly putting it more front and center as, is this going to be the next thing Republicans try to? Yeah, I think it's another example of something that Democrats don't love that much. Exactly. No one really loves the the employer mandate. And, you know, part of the reason why it's only now going into effect for the first time is because the Obama administration repeatedly delayed enforcement, which I think the reasons are complicated. I think part of the reason is it just like was logistically quite difficult. Mm-hmm. The Treasury Department had a lot of difficulty actually doing it. But part of it also was because it would have been unpopular and angered a lot of people. And yes, I think it was convenient. To, and I, yeah. right. I think the reason that the Democrats are OK if it goes away is that um, most of the studies that have been done since the Affordable Care Act came into effect uh, implies that it doesn't really do very much. You well, don't actually need it. That, that employers who are going to provide health insurance are going to continue to provide health insurance. Which they did before the ACA. Exactly. But here are the two points. One, it raises a lot of revenue. And that's a big... The issue right now from yeah. the fines. Um, and the second point is the employers are arguing, look, with the individual mandate gone, we really don't need the employer mandate anymore. Like the idea was it was supposed to be there as a way for people to get insurance to make sure that they could meet their individual mandate requirement, that that was one of the the reasons that the mandate was But also there. So, so employers wouldn't dump all of their workers onto the exchanges right. and have the workers get right. subsidies and right. basically have the federal government paying what the employers right. used a free, to pay. Right. Yes, a free, free ride. ride. Exactly. So does it cost money to repeal the employer mandate? Because the thought yeah, is... Yeah, because of the fines. Right. Yes. And, and because, well, and presumably because then would more people go to the marketplaces and access... They do expect Subsidies. that there would be some dropping off. Okay. Yes. But yes. probably not a lot because, not it, because we've seen that it doesn't have a very big right. effect. Well, it's right. complicated. So I think there are smart people who think that it doesn't have a very big effect, period. But then there's also, I think, a lot of confounding because the individual markets have been so tumultuous. They've suffered so much bad press. Their future has been unclear. The quality of the plans, I think, has been lower than people thought. And I, I think if you're an employer on the margin and you're trying to decide – 
are my workers better off with this employer coverage, which is kind of expensive for me to provide, or are they better off? Why don't I just give them a pay raise and send them into the individual market? I think the fact that the individual market has been so troubled mm-hmm. uh, has made them on the margin decide to hang on. Okay. It's like a little yes. bit of like, we don't know the experiment. If the, if the individual market had been awesome and Obamacare was like going gangbusters, I think we might see more employers dropping coverage. And that's what CBO, by the way, even with the employer mandate predicted would have happened by yeah. now. That's right. That, that the main source of the of the CBO being off in the number of people um, who got health insurance were the number of people they expected employers would drop and they would go on to the individual market. And that didn't, didn't happen, happen, I think, in large part because the individual market was really dysfunctional at the beginning. And a lot of employers, you know, they want their employees to be happy. They don't want to send them into a dysfunctional, it's still dysfunctional individual market. And I think a lot of employers ended up hanging on. because, And that was not what CBO expected it to work. The but now, way in it was Ida- to work. now in Idaho, you can go buy freedom plans. Well, we're getting to that. <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not yet. One other point I think is about, important about the employer mandate plans is that the employers now, they also want retroactive um, retroactively not to have to pay the penalties going back to 2015. So that is, I think, for some of them, even more important than getting rid of the mandate. Yeah more money. All right. Well, let's get out of Washington for a minute. We'll get to Idaho, but only in a second. Um, Health insurers are starting to think about next year about this individual market. Uh, There won't be an individual mandate next year, 2019, to encourage healthy people to buy insurance. Uh, We talked about the way Maryland is considering uh, stepping in to ensure the stability of its individual market a couple of weeks ago. Now, Stephanie, you've written a story on other states that are looking at ways to do their own mandates. How likely is any of this to happen? That's a that's the million-dollar question. I think there's a lot of talk right now. There were nine states where I found that this is something that is actively being considered. Um, another, another. I think it was Connecticut was planning to introduce legislation very, very soon. Um, really, it's an administrative headache, though, for a lot of for a lot of these states to do. It's also very unpopular overall, and it can be potentially difficult politically to sell. I do think that they're it's part yeah, of this. They're basically putting back the most popular right. thing that Congress just repealed. Right. I, but I, what I really think you see happening, though, and, and is really significant, is that these are states that are doing this as part of broader efforts to try and almost do countermeasures to protect themselves from what they see coming out of regulation and administration. Like this is one of many things. And this is coming predominantly from blue states. Um and you see all kinds of different things being considered, like in Washington state, one bill is a requirement you would have to have insurance and it would have to be insurance that met all ACA compliant. So this is, you know, because of the short term plans coming out. So this is part of this this whole struggle that states are doing right now. How can they maintain the parts that they want to? Right. And I mean, you know, the, the big concern here is that without the, the mandate, you're not going to get the healthy people. You're only going right. to have sick people in the in the individual market. It's important to remember that prior to the ACA, you didn't have a lot of sick people in the individual market because insurers wouldn't sell to them. <laughs> right. So right. Now right. now there are sick people in the market. And the question for the states is how to shore up the, yeah, you know, make sure states, that the markets don't fall apart. These are apart. a lot of states I'm talking to that felt like it's worked really well. And that's why they're concerned. So I, I was doing a little reporting about this this week, sort of following on Stephanie's story. And uh, I, I was reminded of the really short time frame available here. So, yes. you know, as Julie mentioned, a lot of these health plans are uh, starting to do the math on next year. They're trying to make a decision like, do I want to participate in this market or not? Rates and then are also, early May for some yeah, yeah, like they, what, they a, in what the are the prices going to be? And the individual mandate uh, will be gone next year. But 
those are the plans that uh, are being considered right now. And so I think the window for states to do this is relatively small. And when I talk to experts, they say that the opportunity for states to do something really complex and innovative, like maybe somewhat limited because it's it's not just that you have to pass the legislation, but if you do something completely new, you have to write regulations interpreting how that works. Plans are going to have to report data to the state that, you know, if it's different from what they're reporting to the federal government now, they have to be able to stand up those systems. I mean, uh, I think we all remember, uh, you know, in 2014, all the difficulties with information exchange and the uh, reporting. So I think if we see this happen, it is likely to happen relatively soon. And I think probably the first states out of the gate, the ones that are trying to stand something up for 2019, are going to do something that looks a lot more like the federal individual mandate. There's sort of model legislation that's out uh, that comes from a former Obama administration treasury official that basically tries to say, uses all the definitions from the federal law and just says, you know, the state has like a couple of points of leverage where they can tinker with it, but they're trying to keep it as 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 much continuity as possible is the recommendation that's being made to a lot of these states. All right. Well, now let's talk about Idaho, which is doing the opposite of uh, what <laughs> these states are doing. Trying, although they, I mean, I guess they say they're trying to shore up their individual market too. Um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Idaho's proposal to allow insurers to offer policies that don't comply with the federal ACA in lots of different ways. Now, the first insurer, the biggest in the state, Blue Cross of Idaho has announced it will sell those plans that University of Michigan law professor Nick Bagley now famously proclaimed to be, quote, crazy pants illegal. Um, (laughs) Who wants to talk about where Idaho goes now? Paige, you you were trying to jump the gun. Yeah. Well, so I guess now, you know, the the insurers have, uh, so they have to go through certification, I guess, right? And so the question is, what will the state's response be now that it's kind of issued this invitation. Um, and someone's taking them up on it. Right. Yeah. And then the bigger question is, how is HHS going to respond to this? And so what a, what, what Alex Azar could do if he decided to crack down on this or enforce... The new secretary the, of HHS. Right. So he could basically determine that the state of Idaho is not, infor- he is not substantially enforcing the provisions of the ACA. And so could then use that determination to step in as the federal government to try to enforce these these provisions and could enact fines of, I believe, $100 per person. Per day. Uh, per day. Per, mm-hmm. Or sorry, per, per, yes, per person per day. Big fines. On, right, yeah. on, these, on these insurers, which would be like massively damaging to them if they actually had to pay this. So, you know, but he's been very, you know, I think all <laughs> health reporters have been watching Azar very carefully this week as he's been testifying on Capitol Hill right, yesterday. He's, and He's then, up for the, the every, when the budget comes out, the secretary's fan out to Capitol Hill to testify on the budget request. So they've right. had a lot of chances to ask him about yeah, it. There's right. been two this week, and there's one more to come. Right. So he was at uh, House Ways and Means yesterday, and then today at Senate Finance and House Energy and Commerce. But he was asked about it yesterday um, and was, like, kind of cagey about it and said, you know, it's our job to enforce the law and there are rules. But then he – I thought his response was really odd when, when he, he also said um, – we haven't been con- – he said something along the lines of we haven't been contacted by the state or asked to weigh in, which I thought was really strange because, like, he's head of the federal agency that is in charge of the Affordable Care Act and implementing it. And then this morning he appears to have kind of walked that back even more. And so well, – He talked about, you know, they haven't, they haven't applied – he would look at a waiver if they applied for it. It's like – 
my impression is not that they're going to ask for a waiver. They're just going to do this and wait for somebody to come in and tell them no. He did say that um, he was really grilled today by um, uh, Wyden, who was saying, we want to know, can you tell us in 10 days what you plan to do? And, And he said, Alex Azar said no, and he was like, can you tell us in 30 days? And even that wasn't wasn't flying. And I think the point that the secretary was trying to say is, well, he really has to wait until he finds out what the state is going to do, if they're going to certify this. But um, the Blue Cross but, plan has uh, expressed its intention to begin selling these plans, I think, as quickly as March 1st. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, there's exchange. really... There's, it doesn't have to wait till the open <laughs> enrollment season. Yeah. Right. Well, and, Which right. is one of the ways they're violating the Affordable Care Act. Also, if you look back at what the Republican Governor Butch Otter said back in January when he was basically inviting the states to do this, is he didn't make it sound like he was going to actually try to even argue that this was permissible under the ACA. I think he was pretty upfront about the fact that he knew it was violating the ACA. And he was saying, you know, using trying to justify it by saying, well, we have these, you know, rates in our individual market and that plans are too expensive for people. So we just need, you know, he was making like a pragmatic argument, not a legal argument. Saying that he's trying to, excuse me, shore up his state's individual market. Right. There will be more to come on this. Um, One one quick thing I want to say is that, too, we have the short term health rules that are expected to drop um, fairly soon. And we I keep think saying that, but yeah. yeah no, I, and I think there's some sense that, well, if those go into effect, it doesn't matter, which I think is is a view that some people in the administration are taking in terms of why they want to delay this. And that needs to be kind of weighed into this, that they may be also trying to play a bit of a, bit of a waiting game. Well, we will, we will clearly update this next week. Um, we're going to stop now and play our interview with Scott Gottlieb, and then we'll be back. Here it is. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the 23rd Commissioner of Food and Drugs, also known as the head of the FDA. I'm also joined in the studio by my KHN colleague, Sarah Jane Tribble, who covers drug prices. Welcome, both of you. Thanks. Thank you. So, Scott, the last time you worked at the FDA under President George W. Bush, you were, to put it nicely, a little bit combative at times. Today, you're being called one of the most successful members of the Trump administration for your ability to address the needs of both the public and the industries you regulate. What did you learn between then and now that's allowed you to be a more moderating force, to, for, for want of a better phrase? Well, I, I never I never knew I lacked moderation, so that's news to me. I appreciate the uh, the insight. But I, I will tell you, um, I've worked, as you, as you mentioned before, as Deputy Commissioner of the Agency. I also worked before that as a senior advisor to the commissioner, uh, Dr. McClellan. And, you know, I learned a lot. I worked for some good commissioners, Andy von Eschenbach and Dr. McClellan. I learned a lot in those in those roles. And I think the most important thing I learned was that it's important that the ideas come from the staff. You know, my I see my job as trying to set an overall direction, um, trying to prioritize where we're going to focus agency resources with respect to policy. But the actual implementation and the ideas in terms of how we're going to achieve the the objectives need to come from the staff. Ultimately, they're going to be charged with implementing it. They have to believe in it. Um, they understand what's possible. You know, so I can come in and say I think it's very important that we try to think differently about how we address opioid addiction or try to address drug pricing and drug competition with some, you know, different focus. But they're the ones who are going to come up with the uh, ideas on how to achieve those ends. Scott, since taking office, you've talked frequently about anti-competitive practices slowing down the process of drug approval and getting those drugs on the market. You've introduced a drug competition plan last year that focused on generics and said it was time to, quote, end the shenanigans. The Trump budget this week had a 180-day generic proposal in it. Does that address some of your concerns and help end the shenanigans? Well, it addresses some of them. I think that with respect to where I see drug companies gaming the system to try to block competition, um, you know, it's 
there's a multitude of ways that it's going on in the marketplace. I think some of them are within the purview of FDA to address. A lot of them are not. But where we see things that we can address, we're going we're gonna to take action to try to address them. And the one that bothers me the most is situations where I see branded companies trying to block the ability of the generic companies to get access to the doses they need to actually run the studies that they need to run to get approval for a generic drug. My view is, as you know, I've supported market-based pricing for innovation. I think it's the proper way to provide the right signals and incentives to get capital formation to develop new treatments. But Can, can you try that a bit, little more in English, please? <laughs> I, think, I think we should have a free market for how products are priced. I think it provides proper incentives for entrepreneurs who are going to make the big investments needed to, to innovate. But that system's predicated on a premise that when patents have lapsed, you'll have vigorous competition from generic drugs. But before you can have that competition, there's one step that the generic drug makers need to go through. They need to file studies with FDA to demonstrate that their drugs are the same. If branded companies are going to block the ability of the generic manufacturers to get get access to the doses they need, so you need between 2,000 to 5,000 actual doses of the branded drug to run those studies if you're a generic manufacturer, if they can't get those doses in the open market, paying full market price, they're willing to go in and just buy it at, at retail price. But the branded companies adopt multi- a multitude of tactics to block that sale. That undermines the whole system. In my view, that undermines the compromise that we've made between access and innovation and competition and market-based pricing for entrepreneurship. Did you work with Trump on the proposal for the 180-day? And can you explain exactly? That keeps them from parking their application and blocking other generics coming onto the market, right? Right. You've described it well. So FDA did advise on on the proposal. Um, we support the administration's budget proposals, obviously. Um, we've, we've provided technical assistance, um, you know, to help support the development of those. But, but that's just one tactic. Situations where, you know, you see deals cut where the generic company will get the 180-day exclusivity and effectively park it but never market the drug, um, which blocks other uh, generic manufacturers from coming to to the market or having an incentive to try to bust the patent themselves. So, you know, we support, obviously, we support the concept of 180 days of exclusivity. It provides a proper incentive to make the investments to to try to, um, you know, upend patents to to break a patent where the courts will support that. But if someone's going to get that ticket, if you will, and then not use it, that's going to prevent other companies from having the incentive to take the same steps. And so you're not going to get rapid competition. Does that need that needs legislation, right? That needs legislation. What about what you were talking about before with the, the ability of the generic companies to actually get their hands on the drugs to make copies mm. of it? Well, there's some things that could be addressed through legislation. I think there's a lot of things we could do administratively and where we can do things administratively, we're going to do it. Um, one, one place where we're taking some administrative action is with respect to the REMS that are sometimes used to, to frustrate the ability, the risk management plans that we adopt as a way to make sure drugs are used in a safe fashion, drugs that have certain risks associated with them. Sometimes the branded companies use them as a way to also block the ability of the generics to get access to samples. Another big tactic is in the contracting with the specialty pharma companies and the distributors where you see branded companies put provisions in those contracts with the supply chain intermediaries where they basically say, you shall not sell to a generic manufacturer. Now, it's not that explicit, but I know that these provisions exist where they, where they compel the um, supply chain not to sell in bulk to the generic manufacturers. And there, again, that frustrates the ability to do the bioequivalence and bioavailability studies, which are the two kinds of studies that the generics need to do to get onto the market. Um, my view is if the generics are willing to go into the market and buy a product at full retail price and 
you know, pay sticker price for it. They should be allowed to do that. Uh, you shouldn't ad- adopt tactics that prevent um, one purchaser from being able to buy a product that's legally marketed. So are we going to see more action from you from a legislative front, kind of helping counsel that and, and get more changes to the patent arena area? You're going you're gonna to see more action from us with respect to providing technical assistance to Congress. Where Congress is looking at taking certain steps, you're going to see more administrative steps from us. And you're going to see more you know, bully pulpit from us as well. One of the things that we want to address is the are the commercial contracts as well. Now, those don't fall directly in our purview, but the generic drug approval process does, and trying to make sure Hatch-Waxman is implemented in an equitable fashion that's does. That's the, the bill that allowed generic drugs, right? <laughs> right. So that's the bill that creates the you know 30-year-old provision that creates the pathway for um, the development of modern generic drugs. And it's also the bill that struck that compromise I talked about between, you know, on the one hand, providing um, incentives for investment and entrepreneurship through a market-based pricing system. On the other hand, creating a, a viable pathway for rapid competition once patents have lapsed. That's a 30-year-old system and a compromise we made as a society. Um, we need to make sure it continues to work. Mm-hmm. And then just to kind of shift gears a little bit, on the other end of the spectrum, when you're approving drugs, pushing those drugs through the process, trying to get more drugs onto the market through the guidances that you've put out, many this morning, actually, um, how do you balance the value um, and take that into account and make sure the value of the drugs are up to par um, when you're speeding up drug approvals? Well, you know, we don't we don't explicitly make economic considerations in the context of the drug approval process, as you know. I mean, those those considerations, I think, should be made by purchasers, patients, providers, health systems who are increasingly becoming more um, involved in making the decisions about which drugs are going to be placed on a formulary. I think where we play a role is twofold. One, making sure that there's pathways to competition in the market um, for new drugs as well. And so, you know, for example, we've talked about, you know, you have a pathway for breakthrough therapies that come onto the market um, more efficiently. What about the second and third drug to market? And so we need to think about that as well. But also making sure that people who are making those decisions have good information so that they can make informed decisions that take into consideration the value that a product's delivering. And so there are steps we can take there, too. One of the things that we're going to do is we're going to soon finalize guidance on the ability of creating a safe harbor for manufacturers to share information with um, health plans and other purchasers around um, things, endpoints that might not be explicitly described in the label, but where a manufacturer might have information and a health plan might want that information to make, make an informed judgment or engage in a value-based contract. So this should help um, once we sort of define this safe harbor. We think it's one element of trying to enable value-based contracting where people are contracting on the basis of things that are important to the patients and the providers in the health system, but might not have been something that was explicitly defined in the drug's label at the time of approval. So, uh, But again, the the ultimate goal is to try to get as much of that information into the label. And so we're looking at you know, ways we can try to create clinical trial designs that allow um, a broader set of claims to be um, pursued or different kinds of claims to be pursued, because we do know that that's become increasingly important to efficient decision-making about uh, products. Forgive me, I'm a little bit confused about where the FDA is on the right to try bills. I know in the past the argument has been that the FDA already approves the vast majority of requests for experimental drugs for people with terminal illnesses and that the real obstacle has been the drug companies themselves who worry about liability or messing up their clinical trials or just not having enough supply of these not yet approved treatments. Is there a way for the FDA to make it easier for patients to get to these therapies? And are you working with Congress on the legislation 
legislation that's now under consideration? Well, we, we support the goals of right to try. Um, we, we support the proposition that a patient who faces a terminal disease um, and, and is out of options ought to have access to promising therapies that aren't yet approved if the provider's willing to work with the patient and the manufacturer's willing to supply um, the product. And I think there's always things that we can do to help fashion a better system to help enable that outcome um, through our current structure. And so we're continuing to look at ways to make the expanded access program work better for patients. We recently created a a portal um, that we think is going to make it easier for providers and patients to not only know what's available, but also apply and get approval for a product um, to to have access to it if they're facing uh, you know a situation where they're out of options. And as you mentioned, that system works well, but it does require a little bit of sophistication on the part of both the patient and the provider. And so we're trying to democratize that to make it easier for people to get access to to those opportunities. With respect to the legislation, we've been working with Congress. We'll continue to work with Congress. We've provided technical assistance on a number of different bills that have been put forward already. I think that there's going to be a compromise worked out in Congress. I think that there's a pathway forward to have legislation that would continue to build on on these these provisions and these goals um, to give patients even more opportunity. I will say that from my vantage point, one of the biggest obstacles that I see isn't necessarily concerns around the liability um, or the adverse events that might be reported in these settings. It's supply. Um, because more of the drugs that you might want to get access to that are promising products in development are biologics or gene therapy products, where you have a very limited supply pre-approval, um, where you know the investments to, to bring on the um, commercial-grade manufacturing are very high, and so many companies don't make those investments till later in the development process. All right. Well, I think that's as much time as we have. Scott Gottlieb, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Sarah Jane, thank you, too. Thank you. Okay, we're going to wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently they think everyone else should read too. But this week, in honor of Valentine's Day, we're going to share our favorite health policy valentines from Twitter. This has become an annual tradition. It was started several years ago by pod friend Emma Sando, then at CMS, now at Harvard, working on her PhD. And it's a mashup of health policy with more traditional valentines. So who wants to go first? Margot? Sure. So I I wanted to uh, recommend one from Andy Slavitt, who was our guest last week, uh, who said, I thought writing a health policy valentine would be easy, but this year there's a work requirement. (laughs) (laughs) Referring to Medicaid, obviously, but that that was cute. Yes. And then, uh, Paige, you you have the Andy Slavitt follow-up, right? Yeah. I think the work requirements really fueled a lot of the valentines this (laughs) year. Well, you know, they've been doing it for years. I feel like the work requirements (laughs) are new, so they're new joke (laughs) opportunities. It's true. It's new new material. Um, This one was from Eric Michael... Uh, Garcia and really made me laugh. He wrote, damn girl, are you Kentucky Medicaid? Because you are making me work for you. (laughs) That was cute. (laughs) That was clever. Um, I admit I like the one by uh, Joy Lee. Um, She posted, breaking my love for you is as urgent and long as an Andy Slavitt news thread, (laughs) which is great because if you read any of uh, Andy Slavitt's news threads, he was uh, CMS at CMS. uh, He tends to go on and on in terms of what's happening for very long. And there's a lot of suspense. What's it going to be next? So I thought that was just right on the money. Yes, he does. He he like he likes to use Twitter in, in lengthy ways. Yes. All right. Well, I, of course, have six in front of me, but I, I can't resist this one. It's from Deborah Roseman. It says, I love you is three words. Healthcare is two. Data is plural. I love grammar and you. 
there's uh, uh, health policy valentines only come come along once a year, but the fight over whether healthcare is one word or two uh, is every day on yes. Twitter. What if we decided? Is it one or two? <laughs> two. 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 Exactly. Okay. Thank you. All right. That <laughs> I'm is glad it. we have unanimity yes. on this. Uh, yes. <laughs> that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us with your questions at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Steph Armour One. At PW underscore Cunningham. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.